to introduce uh, Brian and Kim, and they're coming here. Do you have your, uh, yes, you do, okay. I, I won't say much. You know them. Most of you know them. How many years have you been with us, by the way? 22. 22. I knew it was around 20. We, the first time we visited was about 23, and you supported us from that year on, so maybe 22 as, as part of your missionary family. Well, it's a delight to be back, and I'm going to let Kim just start with a word. Say thank you so much for your faithful support of us all these years. To know that you've stood with us for 20 plus years as we were a young family going out to Bangladesh, you took a chance on us, didn't you? And God has blessed us so much through our relationship with you. We're thrilled every year when we get those cards. As a missionary, let me tell you, it thrills our hearts to see that you all are here praying for us. Without you, we wouldn't be able to do what we do. And there, there's no way that we would have been able to last that long in a country that difficult without firm prayer support. And so I just want to say thank you. I'm sorry I'm all overcome. So I love the music choices. That last song we sang, my daughter and I sang on sunrise service for Easter. And God is so good, but we're missing her. Today's her 19th birthday her first birthday in her whole life without her mommy and daddy <laughs> and she's great she doesn't miss us a bit but mama's having a hard time here <laughs> thank god for christopher in the nursery or mama would be a basket case right now yeah it gets worse than this um, <laughs> We just, again, we want to say thank you so much. You have meant so much to us, and we feel so at home and, and just so welcomed and loved by all of you. And we're just so thankful for you. Thank you. My, you might need this, too. Yeah. <laughs> Do I just set this in the pulpit, or does it need it? Okay. I think we have plenty of mic coverage <laughs> on every side here. My goodness, as I was, you know, I don't, I, I can imagine it's the same for your pastor, but anytime I'm preparing a message, I, my greatest struggle often, I think, is just what topic. It's easier when you're with a group of people and you're following a series, you know, God aligns it and you just do what you're supposed to do, giving the continuity of the knowledge of the Bible to your congregation and helping them to apply it. But I'll tell you, as I was listening to those songs and the choices, I thought, Wow. You know, I always have difficulty choosing in, in the choice of a message for today. It was, it's like your, whoever planned the worship service had my outline for my message. Yeah. <laughs> so um, in any case, as I was approaching that, I was thinking of what kind of outline can I use to sort of get us all together on the same page. I don't even need to do that. The song service just did it itself. But in any case... What are we all about? We talk about missions, and you usually think about sending missionaries, but we're all involved in the mission, the mission of the church. And uh, Paul said, you know, I didn't want to know anything among you except Christ crucified and raised again. And, um, and that's our message, and it's our mission to, make it, to know him and to make him known. Well, we've been packing up a lot of things, 15 years in the present house that we left behind in Bangladesh, and then helping Kate as we pulled everything out of storage once we got here and helped her sort through it, and then help her, you know, she's deciding, what do I take with me? Because once I go from college, uh, you'll be gone, and I'll be carrying what I need from there to the next college. 
uh, Word of Life, and then she's going to switch to another college in, after we're on the field. And one thing that happens is we, we are forced to sort through all sorts of memories. Maybe you've had an experience like that as the summer ended. Maybe you were launching a child in college or something. You know what that's like? And, and you start thinking, you start remembering, and you, and you think, what was the most spectacular or most um, meaningful memory uh, through, you know, up until now? And we kind of think that, about that, and we hold on to it, and we want to remember it. Well, let me ask you this. You know, if, if the disciples were in that place, and you're asking them, of those years that you were with Jesus, all 12 of you together, what memory stands out as more spectacular than all the rest? And you'll never want to forget it. You were all there. You were doing what you were supposed to be doing. Jesus was there. You all were in celebrating. You were, you were hearing his well done or, or just knowing things are going well. And together, not, not just a few of you, not just the three up on the Mount of Transfiguration, you know, it's all of us together. What memory do you think would come to their minds? All 12 together, things going right. It's now happening the way it's supposed to. I, I saw some lip movements. Did I see the triumphal entry? You know, I mean, we could say the resurrection, right? But there were mixed emotions in that, right? I mean, where were they? They were hiding, wondering what's going to happen. One of them was dead. One of them still didn't know where he stood with Christ. I denied him three times in one night. The the night I promised him I would go to prison with him, I would die with him. You know, so um, I I think the triumphal entry is probably that time when it just felt all right. Here they are, we call it Palm Sunday, because they were laying palm branches in front of the, the donkey that Jesus was riding on, and, and the people, um, they're crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! It's a wonderful account in the life of the disciples. It's not the one I'm preaching on today, by the way, it's just the introduction. <laughs> but um, it, it, it makes a point that we need to think about. This account must have been one that thrilled the hearts of the disciples and his followers as they got the feeling that now everybody is beginning to understand who Jesus really is. Our master, the one who's leading us, the one that we're with. They all know it. And life could not be better. Things are going to happen now. But it doesn't take long for us to know that the story turns in a very dark way. Less than five days, the Judas, probably the most educated of the band, uh, the treasurer would go from jubilation on Palm Sunday to the depths of betrayal. Peter would deny he even knew Jesus. The others would run and hide and abandon him. How could the situation turn so very dark in such a short time? I think we need to ask that same question to ourselves. Sometimes we feel like we're going with God and we've seen it. Anyone who's worked with people has seen it. Walking with the Lord, feeling it's all right. We're all together and then boom, everything blows apart. God's people turn on each other. They seem to give up on following. How do we reach that point? I think it's because we fail 
In that time, the disciples were not listening nor accepting the difficult words Jesus had to tell them. Um, and we fail at times to hold on to the difficult words that Jesus has told us. And that's the title of our sermon today. Let's turn to Matthew 16. I love this passage. I've preached on different messages from it, not seeing the whole picture. And I think that this kind of pulls it all together. It's really neatly arranged. And, and if we think of this section of scripture based on the hard words of Jesus and what he's doing with them, you'll see this neat outline come out of it. We're going to look at the first point, which is preparation for the hard words. Jesus is so loving. He knows what we need. He doesn't unload on us more than we can handle. In, in fact, he will shore us up to be able to handle it. And uh, that's what he does with his disciples. So let's look at this part of the passage, verses 13 to 20, to get us started with our first point, the preparation for the hard words. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter, Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus, the Christ. An interesting passage, but it was an important one. Um, so we see, as Jesus is preparing them, he does it by asking a question to get them thinking. And you heard the question, who do people say that I am? And you saw their answers. Basically, a great prophet. You know, the great prophets of the past, or the most recent one, John the Baptist, who had been beheaded. People are sensing that God is at work, and he keeps sending his messenger, the prophet, a great prophet from God. We've got more here. Um, I'm, I think there's a lesson in this. As Jesus is teaching or asking a question, he's, you know, we can learn something from this too. And that's simply this, what you know about Jesus can't really do a whole lot for you if that's where it stays. People can know, was, was Jesus a great prophet? I mean, he wasn't Elijah, he wasn't Jeremiah or some other great prophet, he was Messiah. <laughs> Certainly a prophet, but a priest and a king and a judge and so much more than a prophet. But what, knowing is not enough. And what other people know is can't do anything for us. The second thing I would say is this. Do you realize that more than a quarter of the world population would agree with this statement that Jesus is a great prophet? I remember when I was studying for missions in a practical Bible training school, and I began to be overwhelmed with the Muslim world. And as I was reading, I was reading some books that said Islam is the seventh largest religion in the world. Or no, no, has one-seventh of the world's population are followers of Islam. By, by the, and I was reading books, and my professor informed to oh no, I, I guess the, the later books were saying it's one-sixth of the world's population follow Islam. 
And um, then we went to the mission field. And then after one term, I was reading one-fifth. Just a year and a half ago, Nabil Qureshi said, you know, he's a Muslim convert, and said it's one one in four people in the world are Muslim today. Islam is the fastest growing religion around the world. And you know what they would say about Jesus? He was a great prophet. In fact, he's more than a great prophet. He is one of the four greatest. They put him in a category called Rasul. And these are the prophets through whom God gave his written revelation, which we know today as the Bible and the Quran. Jesus is one of the greatest prophets. And they know that. And any Muslim around the world is not supposed to be considered a Muslim if he he denies that these prophets brought God's message and that they were great men. And it doesn't save a one of them. So close to the truth and yet no hope in this world. Let's move on. Jesus follows up with another question. But who do you say that I am? And we see Peter's answer. He rocks it. He hits the ball out of the park and Jesus makes sure he knows that. You are the Christ, the anointed one, Messiah, that one promise from the time our first father and mother sinned, the one who would crush the serpent's head. You are him. We know this, the son of the living God. And Jesus praises him. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Here we have another lesson. If you do get it, if you know that Jesus is the Messiah, our only Savior, our only hope, there's no room for boasting. Not by works that we've done, not by any great knowledge that we've attained, but by His grace. It's because the Father has revealed it to us. We're beggars showing other beggars where we found bread, and it's the most wonderful thing in the universe. And then Jesus says, in fact, you are Peter, the the Greek word Petros. And if you remember when Jesus called him, remember, he he said, you are Cephas, we we transliterate, Kepha in the Aramaic. And it means Petros, a little pebble. (laughs) But then he goes on to say something else. And on this rock, and the word he uses for rock is not Petras, it's no pebble. It's a massive rock. It's a boulder of a rock. What is he talking about? He's not talking about building his church on Peter. You are Petras, but I'm going to build my rock on this, what you just said. This confession is what I'm going to build my church on. You see, if, if they're going to be prepared for the hard words, they need to know who Jesus is and what he's going to do. And there you have it in both, both of these things in one statement. He is Messiah, the son of the living God. And he's going to build his church. That's what he's going to do. And he's going to do it through them. And he's going to do it through their followers. All you have to do is read forward to his high priestly prayer. That night he was betrayed. John 17. After that, that uh, upper room discourse. He's, he's let them know what they need to know. The last words for their mission. And he prays to his father. I don't pray for them alone, but for everyone that will believe on their name through the word I gave them. Have you believed on his name through the word that came to us from the disciples and apostles? 
we have. And Jesus prayed for you on that night when he took the cross, when he prepared his face and would not be turned aside, when he said, not my will, but your will be done. You were what he was thinking of. And you were what he was planning to do. He was going to build his church. He was going to bring people into his kingdom. And he was going to equip them to do what? Let's read on. And I'm going to build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail. Satan's kingdom will not hold you back. The gates were not, they were a defensive position around the city. The people would rush into the city when an enemy came against them. They would close the gates and they would be fortified inside and try to survive and fight back the army. But it's not us inside the gates. It's Satan and all those held captive at his will. Holding up the city and Jesus says, what am I going to do? I'm going to penetrate those gates and Satan will not withstand me. We sang that song. You know, death could not hold him. Satan, the whole idea is Satan's kingdom could not resist his plan. Could not kill him, could not hold him down, could not stop him from fulfilling his mission. And he came to seek and to save the lost. Didn't come for the righteous. Didn't put us in church to be in a fortress safe from the world. He put us in the church to be on mission as he would go, penetrating Satan's kingdom and bringing new people into his kingdom. Well, that's a whole message you've probably heard many times from missionaries and probably your pastor as well. And so I, you got the point and I don't need to labor there. It's wonderful how it fits in there. But here it is. Jesus is preparing them for some very hard words and they have to get this and we have to get this. He says, I will give you authority to bind and loose in the work I'm doing here on earth. And it's all contingent on knowing what Peter had come to know and confess. Jesus, you are the anointed one, Messiah, son of the living God. Well, we move on to the second point. He's got to share the hard words now. That's the preparation. Hard words concerning me. You need to know who I am. Wait a minute. Didn't advance. Sorry about that. I'm looking the wrong way. Yes, I am going to take up my cross. Suffering, death, and resurrection await me in Jerusalem. That was hard to hear. Now, as we read here, listen, and you'll see, this is the first time he's told them this plainly. He hadn't told them this. There were different ways he was teaching and getting them ready, but this is where he just lays it on the line. Let's read these words. 21 to 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from who? The elders, the chief priests and scribes, God's representatives, the ones that had been trusted with his word. He would suffer from them and be killed and be raised the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, but this should not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are an offense to me. You are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Hard words concerning me. 
It's like Jesus is saying, now that I've confirmed that you know the right things about me, I have to tell you something. It's going to take place. It's going to be difficult. It will involve sacrifice. It will require you to change your plans. I, I have to take up my cross. Death and resurrection await me. And it's absolutely necessary for me to fulfill my mission. Did you notice, you know, Jesus is telling them, okay, so first of all, what do we see here? The words themselves reveal this. And you might be thinking like, are you sure that's the first time he told them? <laughs> well, what do, what do these words say? From that time, Jesus began to show them. If he began showing them, from that time, <laughs> we have a starting point, right? And then we see Peter's response, no, no, Lord, not like this. This isn't right. It's exactly what the Muslims say. No, Jesus didn't die. That, God is just. He could never let a just prophet suffer so wrongfully. And they have, you know, they take from the pseudepigrapha, the gospel of Barnabas and say, oh, it wasn't Jesus who died. You know, God made Jesus look like Judas. And when the, the, the people came into the garden, they realized that he chickened out and that he was mocking them. So they grabbed Judas. Well, God made Judas look like Jesus. They grabbed G Judas. Think they thought it was Jesus and they crucified him. And Judas rightfully suffered for his betrayal. You know, so they have a way to deny that. And Peter, you know, felt the same way. No, not you, not like this. And Jesus says, no, it's absolutely necessary. Uh, all we have to do is look at what he had been teaching them. John 10, 15 to 18, he's revealing something. Uh, you know, John chapter 10 is that the good shepherd discourse. And um, in that passage, you know, the disciples would easily see, hear the mirror. Jesus is claiming to be The shepherd of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What we read there, wow. So as Jesus is communicating, I am the good shepherd. What do we read in verses 15? As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And I laid down my life for the sheep. Well, you know, obviously they would be thinking, well, yeah, he's going to put himself in harm's way so that nothing happens to us. You know, he's, he loves us that much. Um, but there was more to this, and Jesus was saying this. As the Father... Okay, wait a minute. I lay down my life for the sheep, and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. We begin to hear the mission that it encompasses the whole world. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up again. This command I've received from my Father. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. It shouldn't have surprised them. They, they, he had to say this and that he would carry on what he had already been saying. And in fact, I want you to notice something. Did you notice the words resurrection? Not only am I going to die but I'm going to rise from the dead. What's so bad about that? It kind of erases all the bad, right? Now, you can't kill me. You can't keep me down. We all love the underdog, right? That's the one we want to follow. The one who can be real like us, who when he falls, 
finds the courage and strength to get up again. We, we want to follow that kind of person. We, we have a hard time following someone who's so entirely different, they never fall down, right? Uh, they never stumble. They always say the right thing. We, we just can't relate to that. And Jesus was like us in all points. Tempted, tested, yet he never sinned. And, you know, you would think that they would think, wow, you're going to show them nothing that anyone does can prevent what you want to do. Now, this all happened just a couple weeks before that triumphal entry. So that's why I'm saying this. They heard the hard words, but they didn't let it rest in their hearts. And he told them what would happen and that he would arise. They could not hear the words of victory because they could not accept the hard words. And that's what happens in our life. We ignore portions of scripture because they're just a little too difficult. Not for me. That's for someone else. You know, we, we feel that way, don't we? And Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan. It's almost as if he's saying, don't tempt me, not even through my dear friend Peter. And then directing the words at Peter, your plans, we could say of comfort, of safety, that's not from God. God has other plans. And yet we read in 2 Timothy 3, 12, Yea, and all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. We know it. The words are there. In Bangladesh, it was, it was the persecution, I think, that did the, the, the greatest. It moved the gospel forward the, in the best way. A few years ago, we've shared in our prayer letters, you remember Mukhtar Ahmed, we showed his picture down there in the presentation. So many things were going on in his ministry. He had been a Mullavi in the past. He trusted Christ. And, um, I mean, amongst this team, there were all sorts of beatings. One guy lost his wife, taken away forcibly, divorced, given to another man. They know what it means. They know the cost. But as he was trying to reach his village, and we were challenging them, if we're going to reach the Muslim world, the only way it's going to happen is if Muslims go back to the people who know them. You can't abandon your people because they reject you. Go and take on a new name, be anonymous within the church in another part of the country and pass on, you know, pass out the days of your life in fellowship with the family of God. If we're going to reach the world, you've got to go back. And it can't be a missionary face. It can't be an outsider. It's got to be someone that they can see that what has happened is real. It's not money from the West. It's not a job. It is faith in the Son of the living God. Mukhtar was courageous more than the other special outreach workers. Abu Toyeb was quite timid and they were, it was a natural thing and it was natural to say, what would happen to my family if something ever happened to me? Who would take care of my wife, my kids? And it's a legitimate concern. And so Mukhtar, <laughs> he, rest, you know, he stepped in. Um, there, one of, you know, he, he, he has five house churches in different areas in an area that is, has no real law and order. Pirates are strong in that part of the country. It's just hard to police. Uh, one of the men, a brother of one of the men in the church, had his arm, I mean, his leg cut off in a restaurant, you know, as they were sitting for tea just because he had an enemy. Now, he wasn't even a believer, but his brother was trying to reach him with the gospel. Really bad things happened there. And here he is sharing the gospel, bringing people together. And um, a widow had put her daughter in a, a Christian orphanage in the city, in Chittagong, three hours away. Another man in a village not far from there did the same thing, uh, also part of his house church, put the son in. And when the boy and girl came back after a year vacation, they were walking in the path, and a Mullavi passed by, and they gave a namaskar, the greeting that the Hindus give, but 
you know, because Christianity first reached the Hindu people, that culture has been carried into what we call the traditional church. In the orphanage that they had been at, had been teaching them, you know, and they had, they had formed the habits. That concerned the Mullavi. He quickly went and asked the mother, what's going on? The father, what's going on? In two different incidents, he brought their extended family, the big brothers of the woman whose husband had died, and, and they beat her because she put her child in a Christian orphanage. And, they, and the man, they beat him. And, they, and the Mullavi said to him, we know why you're doing this. It's because the Christians are offering you help. You're having difficulty. All you had to do was tell us we would take care of you. Look, your kids belong in our madrasa. And they put them in there. And he said, we're going to give you a job as a, a gatekeeper. And you'll get a salary. You'll be provided for. You don't need to go to the Christians. And so they did that. And the son was so distressed. He felt captive. And they take people through a process. They call it toba where they have to confess that anything they read in the Bible, they know the Bible is corrupt. It's all been corrupted. It's not God's word. It's been lost from the world. Everything they read about Jesus is not true. And they go through this ritual in the mosque and then they have to affirm again, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. And, and the boy was so troubled under the pressure. He said to his father, if they make me stay here any longer, I'm going to drink poison and die. I can't live like this. The father repented in his heart. I can't do this. This was wrong. He took his son out of the prison, I mean, out of the madrasa and, and said, you're going back to that Christian orphanage and I'm not going to work here. I don't need your money. The Molavi, um, you know, in our special outreach team, what's my role? I just try to encourage them. Mukhtar called me. They're beating this woman. What do we do? And I said, well, is it in your home, your village? No, no, it's a village a little bit out. Okay, well, they're going to look at that as interfering in some family matter and dismiss it. That's not going to help. I think you need to just inform the police. What they're doing is illegal according to the Repression Against Women Act. So you just inform the police. There's a woman who's being beaten over here and let the police deal with that part of it. And then you just try to provide pastoral care after, afterwards. So he did that. And um, anyway... Uh, the Mullavi came to his house within the week. You know, they knew where they were, were being inspired. And they said, look, we know who you are, what you are. You're a Muslim. You claim to be a Muslim who's a follower of Jesus, using the Quran in your own culture and language, and you're leading Muslims to follow... You're, you're, you're turning Muslims into Christians. And this is wrong. But if you feel you have to do it, do it in your own house. Don't go in the other neighborhoods, other villages. He said, I can't. He says, we say we are Muslim... Islam means submission. If I am submitting to God and I believe his prophets, then I must listen to them. I believe Jesus is a prophet of God. I believe the Injil Sharif. These are the names they use for the, the books of Moses, book of uh, you know, David's works, Jabur Sharif, Torah Sharif, Injil Sharif. It's the Bible. God, I submit to God by obeying his word. And when someone wants to know him, how can I disobey God? and not introduce them to the only one who can save them from their sins. Jesus is Messiah. He's the word of God, and he's the only one who can save us. And when they invite me, I will go. And it is my right. And he pulls out a piece of the Constitution of Bangladesh that talks about the, the nation has freedom of religion and even to propagate. And so they, there's nothing illegal here, and I have this right, and I'm going to continue. Within five days, police rushed his house in the dead of night and, and put him in prison. Suddenly, that week, 
a tip-off. They received a tip-off about a crime that happened 13 years earlier. There was a, a, a local villages in the area had been raided by 15 men with hoods and pipe guns that they had made homemade. And they held people at these gunpoint gun and robbed them of their sharis and golden ornaments and all of that and escaped. And, and just this week, a person realized that, that he had seen Mukhtar fleeing by lantern light 13 years ago but hadn't spoken up and he thought he should do so tonight. <laughs> they got him in jail and he was stuck there for eight months. He had diabetes. The week before, when he was talking about the woman being beaten and the man and what was going on before the, the Mullavi came and met at his house, he, he told us, my wife is sick. And all the guys started smiling. Is this the kind of sickness that's going to heal in about nine months? <laughs> they use a euphemism. They just won't say pregnant. He had found out his wife was going to have a baby. He has diabetes and now he's in jail. Well... It, it was wonderful. The guys brought medicine to him. They went to encourage him. They visited his wife and kids every week. They got a midwife. The baby was born during his imprisonment. They smuggled a Bible into jail, and he was in the terrorist section of jail because armed robbers go to terrorist sections of jail. <laughs> and so all of his inmates were very dark, shady people. But he led seven of them to the Lord. He gained a new sphere of influence. <laughs> And God did something. When he came out of prison, everyone rejoiced. And though that question, what will happen to my wife and kids, was answered. God will take care of the body of Christ through... God will take care of each member through the body of Christ. <laughs> Remember those words, Matthew 25, when Jesus talks about judgment in the end day? I was in prison and you left me there. I was naked and not clothed. I was hungry. You didn't feed me. All of that. That's how Jesus takes care of the body through his people. And, and Mukhtar, it was all very real to them. And it made a difference. Well, we have to move on to our third point. Hard words concerning you. And that's what we just talked about. Mukhtar and Toyeb and the gang there have learned what that looks like. But it's for all of us. You need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Let's read verses 24 to 27. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What profit is there? Is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus is saying, do you really want to go with me? You want to be a part of my plan? Be my disciple. It's going to cost you something. You have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross. You have to carry the load, which is the instrument that will put you to death. In Luke, he says you have to do it every day. Die daily. Take up your cross daily. And then gives that proverb, whoever will save his life will lose it. Whoever will lose his life for my sake, in my purposes, shall find it. And then what profit if you gain the whole world? We know 1 John 2, 15 to 17, that became my life verse. And it was that verse that moved me to respond to God's call when I was 17. And the world passes away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. That's verse 17. Um, I look at this and we think about what does it mean to deny ourselves? 
It's going to cost us something. Even ready to say, put myself to death, put my wishes to death. Um, for some of us, you know, it, it might just be making that commitment to give to the mission or to commit to pray, give up our time uh, once a day, once a week, whatever it may be. There are many different other ways, and we can think about that a little later. But um, we don't just take the easy route. We follow his plan. We walk the path that he walked. That's what it means to follow him. It cost him dearly. Um, Matthew six nineteen in that verse is the Sermon on the Mount. And Randy Alcorn wrote a book about that idea. Don't lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust corrupts and where thieves break in and steal, but instead lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where nothing can take it away. Moth doesn't you know, eat and rust, rust doesn't corrupt. Thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be with you. Um, that, that treasure principle can be summed up, that whole booklet, in three phrases. And I think you'll it'll be really helpful for you to think about this as we're talking about denying ourselves, taking up our cross. Jesus is warning, your heart will always follow your treasure, whether down to the earth or up to heaven. That's the first point here. Where is our treasure? That's where our heart's going to be. Secondly, Anything we try to hang on to here in this world will be lost. But anything that we place into God's hands will be ours forever. We'll never lose it. And thirdly, um, I think I missed a point here, but um, I guess that's the main thing. That's good enough. You understand. So... um, Jesus gave many illustrations of this. Luke chapter 12, 15 to 21. The parable tells it so clearly itself. Let me just read through it. And he said to them, Take heed and be, beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I'll pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store up all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will these things be which you've provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And Paul latched on to that in 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. You know, Paul was very influenced by the teachings of Jesus. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. And you know what? By world standards, most Americans are rich. If we looked at what percentage of the world, there's a website you can go on, you just put, plug in your, your annual income. I mean, even if it were as low as 15000 for the whole year, you might find that you're in the top 5% of wealthy people in the world. <laughs> You'll have to do that. Check it out. 
But when we begin to realize that we really do have a lot, we can understand wherever we are that this does certainly apply to us. So don't be haughty, don't trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. I love the way the NIV says that last verse. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Sounds a lot like what Jesus said in that Good Shepherd dialogue. The thief doesn't come but to plunder and steal and to kill, but I have come that they might have life and have it to the full, have it more abundantly. That's his intent with everything he's given. And um, so anyway, here's what moves us on to our last point. There's a better way, and it simply is the way that Jesus modeled, the way that he tells us to walk in. Actually, one more verse. It's so quick. It's something you've probably memorized. Hebrews chapter 12, 2. And um, Jesus modeled this path he wants us to walk in, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, for the joy. When he was telling them, I'm going to take my cross, be buried, and rise again. It was for his joy. He endured the cross, despising the shame. Oh, by the way, why, why would there be joy in that? Because he knew what he was going to do. His mission counted on it. Counted on him going to the cross. He would not be able to build his church if he did not go to the cross. He would not penetrate the gates of hell. He would not reach the lost. But because he knew the end, he could face the cross with joy. And now he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's go back to that passage and we'll take our last point. And that is simply this. Jesus shows them that there is reward for those who accept the hard words. Verse 27. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's back that up. I just read over that. How many times have you just read over that? How is Jesus going to come? In his... Let me see, where is it? The glory... Of his father. What's that? The glory of his father. Shekinah glory. The glory that surrounds the throne of God. When he shared in the Olivet Discourse, you know, just, after, just before he would go to the cross, and he talked about, the, you know, they wanted to know the times and the seasons, and he tells them all this, and then he says, when, when, people, when the end time comes and people will be saying, Messiah is over here, and he's, no, he's over here. He showed up over here. He said, don't, don't listen to the rumors. It's not going to be like that. Because when the Son of Man comes, He's going to come in the sky like lightning. The way the lightning spreads from one side of the sky to the other, the whole world is going to see it. And He says, For the Son of Man will come in great glory and with the holy angels. We sing the song or we, in this um, 
this doctrine course I was teaching to the Christian kids at WCA, we were talking about names of God and we came up on Lord of Hosts. And we're, you know, I, you know, we, we often think of, oh, he's the Lord of Hosts. Oh, he's the God of Angels. And then, you know, we were thinking about what does that mean? What does it look like? It looks like exactly what Jesus is going to show the whole world on that day. There are stories in the Old Testament. Remember the whole hillside and Elisha and his servant and, and the servant is scared because we're surrounded by the enemies and, and, and Elisha just prays, Lord, open his eyes. And what does he see? Suddenly the whole mountainside lights up with flaming chariots and angels, an army of angels. And that's small in comparison to what's going to be seen when Jesus returns. <laughs> Because he's going to return in the glory of his Father. It will burst through the sky in the presence of all the holy angels. And the the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies, will descend. And what's he going to do when he descends and the whole world is seeing this? Then he will reward each one according to his works. If we can accept the hard words and follow through and walk the path that he walked, denying ourselves, taking up our cross, allowing him to do in us what he wants to do, build his church, make disciples of everyone around us, we will receive that reward and it will be glorious. I like the way he says it in a chapter in Mark 10, 28. And I think this helps reveal the heart of Jesus. Sometimes we get ideas about Jesus. Um, Mark 10, 28. Um, Kim's father was a loving father and always encouraged his kids to strive for better. She'd come home with a report card and it would be like all A's and then there'd be, you know, just a 98 or something in there, and he'll say, what happened? (laughs) Now, her brother would come along and have C plus and B minus. You're doing better, son. (laughs) But she just felt like, oh, she had all A's, you know, I mean, 98's an A, but if there was just one little thing, she could only focus on dad's disappointed in me because I didn't quite make it. I think we kind of do that. And we think like God, we know what God wants us to do. And Jesus has taught us, and I'm just falling short. I'm falling short. I didn't quite make it. And we get this idea that God is this God in the, su- in the sky, d- disappointed in each little failing. And we miss the point of who he really is. Have you ever seen Jesus talk that way? Anywhere in scripture? <laughs> to obedient children, even when they fall? I don't. I see him talking to hypocrites and people who put on a facade pretending to be something they're not. Peter, look at this little passage here. Um, you know, the rich young ruler comes and he says, I, you know, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, you lack one thing. Sell your goods, give to the poor and come and follow me. And he couldn't do it. It was just too much. And then Jesus says, how hard it is for the rich to come into the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to come into the kingdom of heaven. But then the disciples say, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, impossible for man, but not impossible for God. With God, all things are possible. And on the heels of that, what does Peter say? Look, I'm sorry, it wasn't 28, was it? Oh yeah, Peter, he says, began to say, look, see, we've left all and followed you. How does Jesus respond? It's almost like Jesus is saying, good job, you did it. And you're getting there. And let me tell you something, there's great reward. And listen to what he says about that. So Jesus answered, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left 
house or brothers or sisters or land or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Wow. Romans 8.32, listen to these words. This is the heart of your father. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him not also freely give us all things? That's what he wants to do. And his heart for us should be motivation enough. There's great reward for those who obey the hard words. Jesus affirms being his disciple, going with him, fulfilling his purpose, participating in what he is doing is worth it all. Worth all the sacrifice, worth all the pain. It's the pathway to fulfillment and joy and victory and it leads to eternal reward. We have to ask ourselves then, what does this mean for me today? What cross... does Jesus want you to take up as you follow him? For some, it might be just to believe God's word and accept Jesus as your only hope for salvation. Sometimes that involves shame within a family, with a a religious tradition. And we say, yes, I'm going to follow you now. I believe. Thank you. I accept you as my savior. And that's a cross, For others, most of us probably, it's to stop worrying about what others think and just speak for him. Love our neighbor enough to tell them that, to give them the gift, the greatest gift that anyone could ever receive. Could it be that God wants us to just embrace a path of suffering or sacrifice with joy instead of envying others who may not have to walk that path or seem to have it so easy? It might be that we just need to put to death that besetting sin. And we all have some place that Satan knows he can target. If he wants to get us, he's going to target that one place. Every one of us. You know, we look at others and we notice others who may be worse in our estimation, but there is something in every one of our hearts. Maybe the Lord wants you to put that to death with his help. Maybe to forsake our desire for influence more than God's glory. Could you imagine what things would look like if we all just didn't care who got the credit? And we just did the part that God had for us to do side by side. (laughs) As he, as the head of the church, directed the body. Maybe give up our accumulation of wealth to expend on ourselves or have a safe future. and, And just give it to him and trust him. Why don't we take up our cross? We want comfort. We want safety. We want what everyone wants. We want it now. We struggle with delayed gratification. Maybe we fear negative consequences. Let me just say this simply as we end. Follow Jesus. He is worth it. He's worth any sacrifice we could ever make. Remember that verse in Colossians. When Christ, who is your life, shall appear, then you shall also appear with him in glory. And it's for, his, it's for your reward. In front of them all. He who sees in secret will reward openly. He's our life. 
love that, that passage when Paul appears, and when God appears to Abraham. Abraham, I am your exceeding, I am your shield and exceeding great reward. When we know him as he is, we, we understand that he is our reward. With, with him, we don't need anything else. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. And I end in the words of Jim Elliott. I love these words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. God bless you. It's a pleasure to be on mission with God and with you. Thank you so much for all the ways that you facilitate our work. And God bless you in your mission here in Alfred Almond.